0: Welcome to the Beeson podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host,
1: Timothy George. Welcome to today's Be Some Podcast. I'm Kristen Padilla, Executive Producer of the Podcast, filling in for our Dean Timothy George, who is away this week speaking at the Gospel Coalition Conference and at Hope College in Michigan. Well, today I have the great privilege of introducing you to a wonderful friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Barbara Pemberton. Dr. Pemberton is Professor of Christian Missions at Ouachita Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, and Director of OBU's Carl Goodson Honors Program. She did her Ph.D. in World Religions at Baylor University and is particularly interested in Islam. For 11 years, she spent her Christmas and summer breaks in Saudi Arabia studying Islam. Dr. Pemberton is a prolific speaker and has written numerous academic papers on the topic of Islam. She was one of my professors when I was a student at Washita Baptist many years ago, and she is one of several professors who encouraged me toward theological training, in particular toward Beeson, of which I am most grateful. She is here in Birmingham this week talking to her students about Islam. Islam. So, Dr. Pemberton, it is with great joy to welcome you to the Beeson Podcast. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Most happy to be with you. Well, thank you. This is going to be a fun podcast. I want our listeners to know something about you, about the person I love so much. Tell us about yourself, how you came to Christ, and uh, your call to ministry.
0: I love telling how God drew me to Himself. It's um, my favorite part of me, I think. I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, which is so much like Birmingham, I think, uh, in my grandparents' home. My parents divorced when I was just a baby, but that was okay. I love them, but I love living with my grandparents. They were so good to me. But my parents came and went, and that stayed with me. I wondered why someone who loved me so much had to go away, go and come, and that, that has still kind of stayed with me, actually. But I love going to church. They faithfully took me to a church where I sat with my grandmother, who uh, was in charge of the cradle roll ministry for 50 years. I used to help her make little pink and blue bows for the new babies. For um, These were for families that had babies, these were new families in Christ. They had been uh, brought to Christ through that ministry, so it was very, very profound to see a woman so dedicated to that ministry. Well, I sat with her in church, and I loved it, but I'll never forget the Sunday that the pastor was talking about Christ, of course, and he said, as you enter into a relationship with Christ, it is a forever relationship. And he used Hebrews 13.5 that says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, and I really, truly think my heart skipped a beat because that's exactly what I needed, what I wanted so desperately in my life, that forever assurance. And so I went home and I sat on my bed and I opened scripture for myself and I read it and I gave my heart to Christ in prayer on you know, on my bed. Um, the follow-up of that, though, is, of course, I went to talk to my pastor about wanting to be baptized to follow up. I knew to do that. But I asked him, so what about people in other religions, and he was so surprised. (laughs) But I was blessed to be in a church that really discipled people, They discipled children, and he assigned women to me really quickly, and we went through children's study course books. I don't know if they even exist anymore, but I learned about missionaries, I learned about theology, they put me in discipleship training. And I had a woman leader who really put us through our paces. We had to stand up and talk about theology and memorize scripture. And that has really been a huge part of my life. I even teach a class at OBU in discipleship in the church. So little did I know, and little did that leader know that, you know, what was coming in our futures. But she invested so much in us.
1: And I remember having you in class for that discipleship class, and that class had a profound impact in my own life and my call to ministry and my journey to seminary. So I thank you, and uh, I guess I should thank uh, the leaders in your church, the women in your church who instilled that that desire for training and discipleship in you. No, actually, thinking back, every
0: one of us in our small group that went through discipleship with this one leader— When I I went back to see her years later after I'd finished seminary. And she said, finally, the last one has come. Every one of us went into ministry. Think about the ministry that she had, working with young people. You know, who knew, really? But that brings up my call because we talked about that a lot in that class on discipleship. And it was about a year after I came to Christ that I was sitting on my same bed again. And I was reading in Isaiah 6-8. When it says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And I, again, I think tears dropped in my Bible. And to me, what that meant, you know, I said, Send me, send me. But to me, what it meant then, and it still means to me, is, Okay, I'll do whatever. It didn't mean missions now or youth work or women's ministry or any of those things. And I've kind of done all of them. But It has been a joy. Every day there's something new. And I never dreamed I'd be a teacher. So you never, ever know what God has in
1: store when you are just willing. So what happened after you uh, received that call to ministry? Well, I went through discipleship training at my
0: church for a long time and stayed with it. And I can't say that I didn't take some detours. In my life, I went to college and studied. I did study comparative religion, actually, but I did get a degree in television broadcasting, believe it or not. I worked in radio. I got married, had three children, three under three. Now, there was a challenge. That was the challenge. (laughs) Uh, raising them was really the challenge, moved all over. My husband is an engineer, so we lived in Alaska. We've lived in South Carolina. We've lived in Arizona. He has moved us a lot. So that took up a lot. That was my life until I really knew that it was time for seminary. And I can't say why I knew, but God just laid it on my heart. I was, right then, I was youth minister in a mission church that we had started in Anchorage, Alaska. And I knew I needed to know more. I wanted to be able to answer their questions with scripture and really soundly and fill out that theology for them. They deserved that. So, I told my husband and man, not within the next week. He was transferred to Texas. Wouldn't you wouldn't you know? So then I did have
1: the opportunity that's wonderful. And so then how um, did you get to Baylor University and particularly uh, to study world religions, to do your Ph.D. in world religions? Uh, what drew you to that? i thought a lot about why world
0: religions, because my my master's work is in theology, and that was very, very important because i 'm very rooted in my faith, that was very important. The deeper I studied other religions, they never people ask me quite often does it are you am I ever lured into thinking, well, maybe this could be true, and I never have been uh, Shaken because I really was well rooted, and I take very seriously introducing students to world religions because i don't want to introduce anything that might shake their faith, and so i'm I'm very careful to get to know the students and invest in their lives to be sure of that, and what was what's humorous I am a generalist, and in world religions, you do study uh, did you know that there's a new religion every day <laughs> yeah, I, that is that's that's so crazy, but a semin- a visiting missionary, on furlough, was teaching at the seminary, and I was taking his The Biblical Basis of Missions, which was really, turns out it was a really important class for me to have had. But he assigned a paper to me on the five pillars of Islamic orthopraxy, and I was hooked. I was totally hooked. I think, looking back, because I can understand a people who love their text, and I have always loved Scripture. And I can understand the people who want desperately to trust their text. But what Muslims are doing is trusting their text to tell them how to merit paradise. And I want to use text to engage them. I've done a lot of comparative textual work. So I can sit down with someone and talk about how we we don't merit
1: paradise. And there is another text through which they can find Christ so why would then a christian study islam and what is it that they believe it's really important today to study islam
0: because it's growing and it's growing mostly in its influence really you may not we may not have that huge percentage of muslims here in the us even but its influence around the world is huge and we do have muslims in many many communities and Fear leads to you know, all kinds of problems, and it's better to know about something and not be fearful. That's why we need to know our own faith, so we're not afraid, too. When you have a, a more solid foundation, you're not afraid. But a little bit, just a little bit in case people don't know much about Islam. Now, according to their story, it began in the early 7th century in the Arabian Peninsula when their prophet Muhammad received a revelation from God. Now, Allah is just the Arabic name for God, so I'm going to say God. But they would say Allah. He received this message through Gabriel that there is one God, and he would be their prophet. And through him, they would learn how to merit paradise. At that time, there were Bedouin tribes. They had many different gods. That was polytheism there. But there were Jews and there were Christians. But their message says that Jews had corrupted their text and Christians had corrupted the New Testament. So to them, the prophet's work corrected the earlier texts. Now, Muhammad did not write it. They believed that he was just a man. But God's very words corrected the texts, is what they believe. That they they strongly have to lean on this because they do desperately want to avoid a very bad hell that is described in their text, the Quran. So they are given orthopraxy or things to do in love. They they hope that this will work. Much you know, it's faith, and they believe God is benevolent and loving, and He will accept the rituals that they do. And there are these are very visible signs. And these are the things we all see. We kind of know what a Muslim looks like because they do these things, right? The first thing is they have a profession of faith that says they believe that there is one God and Muhammad is his messenger. And that's important to remember because a, a Muslim not only believes in this one God and no trinity. They believe that's our error, is is our trinity. But they also are really, really believing that Muhammad, they are trusting that Muhammad gave them the truth. So I call uh, what they do sort of what would Muhammad do? This is what you find in their work called the Hadith. They have written down what they think he said and did and allowed. And that is their way of knowing how to live out the Quran. So the prophet is that important to them. So to be a Muslim is to trust your eternity to the things that you know, you are doing following the example of Muhammad. They pray five times a day, and that is ritual prayer. It's not like our sitting down and having a conversation with God, though they can do that too, they say. But for a Muslim, God is very distant and, and other, unapproachable really. I had a Muslim friend look at me and say, you can no more have a relationship with God than you can a pencil. Which was so sad. You know, it was just so so different. But I have had Muslim friends say, well, they they do talk to God regularly. But again, technically, according to their faith, God is held to be so other that you are doing this ritual prayer in hopes that it will be accepted. They even start with asking God to accept their prayer. And how wonderful we know that when we can come boldly to the throne, we just need to do it more often. Um, They give alms every year and they give about two and a half percent of what's left over each year and they can give it to the needy the mosque an organization or whatever most of us know they fast during ramadan what we may not know is that is honoring the receiving of the quran so they are honoring the giving of their text Not only do they fast, but sometimes they memorize the Quran. The Quran is about the length of the New Testament. And it's very uh, normal for a little child to memorize the whole Quran, whether they speak Arabic or not. Technically, it's not the Quran unless it's in Arabic. But I ask my students, so have you memorized the New Testament? (laughs) Not many have. My, My goodness, we should. The last of the five is their pilgrimage to Mecca. This is really, really, really important. I don't think people understand quite how important that is, because if they can at all go or afford it, they have to go there. Mecca is their holiest site on earth. The whole country of Saudi Arabia is holy ground, but it is most sacred to them. Unbelievers can absolutely not go there, not at all. And when they go there, though, they do the things they think Muhammad did there, but they experience what they see as the ideal Islam. They see it regulated with um, the the things that they everything they do there. They do not believe in separation of mosque and state, like we believe in separation of church and state because they believe the prophet was not only their religious leader but also their political leader as well. So when you have that situation, you can have religious police who enforce prayer time and enforce modest dress. This is why we see pictures of women veiled and and covered. It's a it's a very communal religion. I kind of think of it they're they're in this together. Uh thinking about the way women dress, I had a Muslim friend, a young man tell me, "I understand that in your faith, people come to Christ one on one, you share your faith one on one, but we're in this together. We cover up the women so the men will not be tempted. So they're, they're in this together, and they believe that it, it is the role of the community, if you will, to help everyone merit paradise.
1: You just said profession of faith. Do they actually use that term that we Christians do? They use a lot of terms that we do, especially
0: in the US. They're imams sometimes are called pastors. They have congregations. I've actually been to vacation Quran school.
1: Really? Yes.
0: <laughs> a a Muslim woman was very Uh, impressed with Vacation Bible School and thought, well, this would be a great way for their children to learn the Quran." So they
1: they do those kind of things. So it could be that for us Christians, sometimes if we were to overhear Muslims talk about their religion, we might need to be aware that they're using some of our terms because we could be easily confused. Is that correct? Yes. And remember, they really do want
0: to see us come to the religion of Islam. They have a goal for the whole world to come to Islam. I've had dear women weep over me, mm. telling me that if I would just come to Islam, I would have peace. Mm. The, the word Islam itself means it has the root word in there, peace. But we need to remember that what they are meaning by peace is that peace found in Islam. There will only be peace in the world when the whole world is submitted to Allah, and you do that through Islam.
1: And we know that Jesus Christ is our peace. Right. Uh, What are some misconceptions Muslims have about Christians? They have many,
0: just like we have some misconceptions of them. They have many. I think I already said that they do not believe in the Trinity. They really believe, their text tells them, that our Trinity is Father, Son, and Mary. (laughs) They think, we think, that God had sex with Mary to have Jesus. Well, of course not. And you try to tell them, no, we don't believe that. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. No, 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 we don't. Again, they also believe that we dishonor God and Jesus by the very idea of the cross, that God would have never let his dear prophet, and they believe Jesus was a, a very wonderful prophet, would never let a beloved prophet die so terrible a death. No way. They also believe that God, again, is so other that he can't be known. And so they think there's no way we have. We talk about relationship. We talk a lot about loving God. And because their God is not really relational, that, that kind of misses them. That kind of is not part of their language in their religion, though. You talked about their using our terms. I have been in a setting where they gave an altar call and they did talk about having a loving relationship with God and joining brothers and sisters in the faith, and I was stunned. But I think that's very Americanized, really. I think that's something that's done here. They also believe, many do, that we want to lure them to hell, that if they visit our churches they might go to hell, which, of course, they don't. We, we don't believe. We don't want to lure them to hell. This is terrible. But they also, oddly, some think that the aid we might send to other countries that are in need, that we're trying to buy them hmm. into the faith. And that is so not true. Of course, that's untrue.
1: What is our response, then, to um, these misconceptions? How do we relate to a Muslim Their values, they have marvelous, wonderful values.
0: Honor, power, submission, submitting to God. Well, let's think about that. Back to, are we dishonoring God? No, we can talk about the incarnation itself. They have a lot of trouble with that. But if we talk about it as the power of God to take on human nature, so let's not limit God. Of course he can do that. They do not understand the incarnation that that troubles them deeply, but also the cross. And I I said they see the cross as dishonoring God. Well, no, it does not dishonor God. We need to be able to explain it as God's victory over sin and death and Satan, and they are very aware of the spirit world. They understand that, that that it's ever-present with them. So the understanding that he has defeated evils forces is very powerful for them. The cross displayed God's glory, his power, his sovereignty, all things that resonate with the Muslim heart. You know, another aspect of the cross that we could explain to Muslims is it is the generosity of God. They uh, think often about they are generous people and hospitality is so important, but this is God's free gift, but it has to be received. And yes, relationship, we don't deserve it. They, they think, well, Christians, because they say they are saved, they know they're going to heaven, that we just run amok, that we can just sin and it's no big deal. And of course, that's not true. But if we say we would never dishonor our God, our Father in that way, that they would understand so much better. They also, remember, they truly think you can merit paradise. And I have found, and this is the one thing I always ask my world religion students to remember, every religion offers only what you deserve, and exactly what you deserve. And do you want what you deserve? I don't want what I deserve on any given day at all. Eastern religions give you karma. Western religions give you what you can do, your own works. You have to merit it, but only in Christ do you get grace, and other religions Try to lean that way. Some of them move in that direction, but only in Christ do you find that eternal saving grace. That's the difference. People ask me often, what is the real difference between Islam and Christianity? And all really goes back to their understanding of God and Christ. God is not, their God, their understanding of God is He is so unknowable, He is so foreign and distant, and He does not love sinners. How different is that? How different is that? We know, and I love the verse Romans 5, 8 through 9, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I still remember from my childhood back in church that marvelous children's song, Oh, How I Love Jesus. When I talk at churches, I make everyone sing it with me. But it's good to remember, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how
1: I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. Well, today my guest on the Beeson podcast has been Dr. Barbara Pemberton. She is the professor of Christian missions at Washita Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. We have enjoyed having you on this podcast, not only enlightening us about Islam, but even how we as Christians can relate to Muslims and understand our faith that much better. Before we end this conversation, can you suggest a book to our listeners who want to learn more about Islam? The first book that comes to mind is Seeking
0: Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi. The reason is, other than it's just very well written, a wonderful book, but he shows you a very loving Muslim family and how it is lived out in a wonderful home and a religion that he, he grew up loving, but how God called him out of that. And it was hard. It was hard to come to Christ, but he teaches you so much about Islam.
1: But it's, it's that great story of coming to Christ. Well, thank you, Dr. Barbara Pemberton, for this wonderful conversation. And I am glad that you are here at Beeson this week. Thank you. I've enjoyed it.
0: You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, Beesondivinity.com.